All right. Well, we are on chapter 22. We did get started. I don't know if we did one or two meetings on this chapter. Uh, but I wanted to back up just so we could catch up and take off running again. Um, but let's read this first section. Well, let's go ahead and read the first... Uh, let's read the first four sections. No, we're going to read it. We're going to read it all. And then we're going to talk about it. Because I want to... We're not going to talk about all of it, but I think all of it's important. The light of nature demonstrates that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. He is just and good and does good to everyone. Therefore, he should be feared, loved, praised, called on, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and all the strength. But the acceptable way to worship the true God is instituted by him, and it is delimited by his own revealed will. Thus, he may not be worshipped according to human imagination or inventions or the suggestions of Satan, nor through any visible representations, nor in any other way that is not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Actually, I'm going to stop right there because this is what we're going to talk about, and then we'll go through and see where else we are. If you remember, <clears throat> I gave you this word last time because this is kind of what this is about. It's called the regulative principle, right? You don't know if you remember us talking about that. Basically, the regulative principle is the belief and the principle that you try to, uh, within worship, and this I think counts uh, anytime, but certainly in a gathered worship like we try to do every Lord's Day, we only do what has been prescribed to us in Scripture. To, that's how we worship. So we don't bring, uh, you can see the language that was used there, and we talked about that in detail what some of these things mean, like the imaginations of Satan, or uh, the human imaginations and inventions or suggestions of Satan. Um, pretty much anything that's not written in Scripture could fall under those categories. All right, just things that people make up. Um, obviously, visible representations. We're not going to have idols, um, but it clearly says anything that is not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And we talked about the fact that this idea came out of, it really probably started a little bit prior to the Reformation, but it was sparked really by a debate between English Puritans and the Church of England, right? The Anglican Church. Because the Church of England believed it had the power to decree for worship anything except what is forbidden in the Word of God, right? We talked about this. I did a little chart for you. So the Anglican Church said, we can do anything that's not forbidden, but then the Puritans believed the church has the power or the right to decree nothing except what is expressly or by implication enjoined or taught by the word of God. So you see that difference? There's a difference of the Anglican church or the England, English church. They, could, they said, let me just read it to you instead of writing it down. For the Church of England, that which is commanded, they can do in worship, true worship, is that which is commanded and anything not expressly forbidden, right? For the Puritans, they believe that only what is commanded is true worship. And anything not commanded is false worship or outside of Scripture. So you see the difference. Um, 
I think we talked about it in great detail, but somebody illustrated it like this, and I thought this made great sense. It's like you have two builders that are going to build the temple of God. You have Mr. Anglican, who must use the materials of the Word of God, but has no blueprint, and can use any other materials he finds to make this temple, right? And then Mr. Puritan is going to build the temple, but he's only going to use the materials of the word of God are found expressly or by implication in the word of God and he does have a blueprint he has the word right and as you can imagine these two buildings will be drastically different when they're completed and it would probably be obvious that one would please God a little more than the other one right because one's given free reign to do whatever and the other one is explicitly going to take the word of God and what the Bible says and build the temple so I think it's very important for us to talk about this because probably one of the things that would separate our worship from most people's worship and church's worship is this idea of the regular principle. Now, I'm not saying that we're perfect at it. Um, I'm not saying that we don't need to still learn because I am still trying to learn. But when we go on through here, you'll see the things that are specifically commanded in Scripture. And we're going to look at some verses tonight. To, to prove out this point because I want us to really think through that. What's, what's really the difference in uh, the Anglican church saying uh, the word and what's not forbidden and, sorry, the board's jumping around. Won't let me write. I should say forbidden. And then the Puritans who say only what's written, only what's commanded. So when it comes to worship, it doesn't look like that big of a difference, but it can be a vast difference. Because, can y'all think of some examples that... Even in modern church, can you think of examples that this would be? Or think about this time frame, if you know much about that time frame. Well, I know there's one church that used, uh, like I've seen the video clip where they were playing Highway to Hell. Right. In the worship service is like right. a worship song or something. It's like, yeah. well, I don't know that ACDC is worship. <laughs> right. I've seen that. Some people have worshipped at the feet of the ACC. And I've seen um, churches have dancers like would be at a, I don't know, ballet. people. No, not, well, ballet would be nice compared to what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like twerking kind of, yeah. um, who's the people? Britney Spears is too, not too old. Who's the new person? Beyonce. Well, something like that or even... Uh, Taylor Swift, can't believe my kids would be disappointed I don't know that name. But um, even those kind of, that kind of dancing brought into a worship setting. And and you could just go on and on. I think I mentioned last time I had seen a video where they had, uh, this church believed in a, a rapture like everybody's going to disappear all at once. And they literally have people pulling them up out of the church audience with chains on them, pulling them up into the <laughs> into the rafters of the auditorium, and um, and you know, it just I think it could go from 
that if you go back to here, of course, there was a lot of things that the Anglicans didn't necessarily agree with with the Roman Catholic Church, but there's a lot of stuff you know that the Roman Catholic Church had added into um, worship that um, certainly the Puritans come along and um, and even our Baptist forefathers came along uh, even as you know, as early as 1650, 1640s, and they're saying, hey, there's some things going on that I don't see commanded in Scripture. And so they took this very seriously to try to figure out, you, you know, if we're going to worship God, then we probably should pay attention to what, how he said he needs to be worshipped and the only ways he can be worshipped. And that's why even today this can, this can just get to a place to where, well, if it's not forbidden... I mean, why not? We can do whatever. Like dressing modestly. It's not the length of the skirt isn't mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably more, uh, I don't know if that would have specifically to do with worship, but I guess it does, I guess in some ways, um, I don't know that that would fit into the regulative principle, but um, I guess how you come before the Lord would, would matter, yeah. Because um, how, maybe how maybe how you dress could suggest um, what, how you feel about God, you know, in some way. I they think. also instituted like you women had to have their hair head covered, you know, those kind of things were part, brought into part of worship too. Yeah, yeah, and there's some stuff in the New Testament about that that they had to work through, you know, when it says stuff like that and what did that mean and what was it about. I saw a church um, service where everybody was encouraged to bring their pets. Because mm. they thought that could somehow be worshipful, I guess. But, so it's not forbidden, but right. it's how we're supposed to be worshipful. Right, exactly. That's a, that's a, that's another great point. Because it just starts getting to where, you know, what is, a you know, like um, even things like skits. And I've seen those go from simple little skit to very elaborate, wow, you know, there used to be, I can't remember the church that used to, I mean, that was part of their worship every Sunday was, they would have a huge skit that would illustrate the whole sermon. Um, you know, you start getting to some of that stuff, and you think, well, I mean, how evil could that be? But especially if you start getting down to, okay, like um, special music or doing things in front of the church that, you know, you start getting, you can start getting nitpicky, and you have to be careful. But because some of the things people say, well, if we're singing, then why does it matter how we're singing? You know, but um, but I do think it's important if we keep this in mind. Let's okay. Well, let's see what's what does God command, and we know some things He commands. He commands prayer. He commands uh, 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 singing and admonishing one another with, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We know He, he commands preaching. We know He commands uh, loving each other and. Um, Public reading of scripture. Public reading of scripture, communion, those kind of things. So I think it's at least safer. Now I think I think it's always okay for leadership of church to try to get together and sit down with the Bible and figure out okay what is the what is appropriate for us and what's not appropriate. And like I, I think I was praying about this earlier, I guess because all this is in my mind. It's also okay <clears throat> to realize maybe we've been doing something we shouldn't be. So let's stop doing that and move on to something else, you know. And um, you know, if God's given us repentance over that, we move on to the, we move on and try to do better. 
And I think, uh, again, that is among, uh, that one thing right there is one of my favorite things about Reformed worship is that idea that we don't have, we're not going to get stuck in some kind of um, tradition that, you know, people can get mad and leave the church over if we stop doing. Especially if we examine, um, <clears throat> you know, if we examine and realize, okay, this may not be an evil thing, but it shouldn't be in worship. You know, I'll give you some examples that I faced as a pastor. I get to churches, and we already do something like on Memorial Day. Incorporated into worship is a time of celebrating soldiers or former military people. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's not wicked and sinful to celebrate military. I don't think it should be in the middle of worship service because that can get confusing. And, and um, even uh, the church I grew up in, we had a, a memorial. Every time Memorial Sunday, Memorial Weekend came around, we had a time during worship where we sort of memorialized and remembered all the people from our church who had died in the past year. And again, it wasn't a bad thing to do, but during the worship hour set aside to worship the Lord, it can be very confusing. You know, you, you had to start thinking. I had to start thinking, like, what if I was, I'd never been to church, I had no context, and I came into this worship service on Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> I would think this is ancestral worship of some kind. I mean, we've got God in here, Jesus, and Grandma, and we're doing all these things. And um, now that, you know, that caused a lot of problems to try to sit down and talk to people about, hey, this might be not the best idea. Or how about we come up here on a different day or how about we come up here at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday and just have a, a time where we celebrate and uh, say thank you to military people in our church and we give them a, a, some food or something. But it was, a, I mean, that gets you fired in a Baptist church in a hurry. Um, and so you have to, but, you know, those are kind of things that, again, if you're trying to point this out and people never heard, don't even know what you're talking about, they're like, what? Nowhere does it say we can't do that. Okay, but yeah, but nowhere has God commanded us to do anything except for worship Him and, and focus on Him. And, you know, I, you, you don't want to be legalistic about stuff, but this is one of those places where I think it's okay for us to be hypervigilant and try to figure out, okay, what should we do at worship and what should we not do at worship, you know? That's pretty important, especially when we look into the Scriptures and see what they say. And, and we're going to do that um, at a few places. Um, I want to give you these. Uh, Sam Waldron pointed out four biblical arguments to consider for the Puritan regulative principle of worship. And I thought these were good. I didn't give them to you last time. <clears throat> but one, uh, the prerogative of God alone to determine the terms on which sinners may approach him in worship. I mean, that's a good point to consider. And that's what we're talking about. Who gets to decide what worship is? The worship team and the church leadership? I mean, we're worshiping God. So I think God gets to choose that, right? We're going to let him decide. And he's gonna, we're going to look to his word that he's left us. And so that prerogative of God alone to determine the terms on which sinners may approach him, that's a pretty big deal. Secondly, the introduction of extra biblical practices into worship inevitably tends to nullify and undermine God's appointed worship. Kind of the same thing. Extra biblical practices. And you think, well, uh, where does that come from? One of the best places to look is Matthew chapter 15. If you want to look at, if you've got a Bible with you and want to look at that right quick with me. 
Matthew 15. Now he's talking about, he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, but he's, he's kind of hitting them up about this. Your, your traditions and your worship um, have become more, and if, anybody, if there's anybody ever been that added and believed that we can do what's not forbidden, uh, as long as it's not forbidden, it'll be the Pharisees. I mean, they added all kinds of laws to God's law because they felt like, well, we have the freedom to do this. So let's see there in verse, uh, let's see, we'll look at verse 3, 8, and 9. Um, well, let's just read it. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus in, to, in Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't even wash their hands when they eat. And he said, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, that's pretty hard. You know, Jesus, people think Jesus was all lovey-dovey. He's pretty straight up and like, well, okay, i got a question for you. And then he, uh, for God commanded, he said, Honor your father and mother, for whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you have gained from me is given, uh, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made, the vo- you've made void the word of God. And that's pretty tough. And, it keeps, and then he says, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the <coughs> commandments of men. And so I think that might be one of the most dangerous places for this is what I was mentioning about uh, Memorial Day services in my context. We got to be careful. We're not introducing the commandments of men as doctrine of God. And so that, to me, again, you know, I'm not being, uh, I'm not being hypercritical of people that, um, that loved me and took me to church and brought, you know, made sure I heard the word of God. It was just a difficult thing to get people to understand, hey, we probably should stop and consider if, if what we're doing in worship is what God wants us to do at worship. Because, I mean, you know, Lord, we had Santa Claus at our church on Sunday night. He would literally come down the aisle, sit on the, you know, I'm not much on altars, but he'd sit up there where the pulpit was, and that's where all the kids come to see Santa Claus in our church. <clears throat> so I, I was able to get that out. It took me a little while. But, um, I mean, you know, you just have to start thinking uh, these things are these things can be pretty important. <laughs> I mean, and, and we need to <clears throat> we need to consider how important it is. So that's just one of the places. We'll look at a few more. Um, I think I gave you those first two print uh, arguments to consider. The third one is the wit- the wisdom of Christ and the sufficiency of the scriptures are called into question uh, by the addition of unappointed elements into worship. In other words, can we not trust that that Christ and his wisdom, since he is the word of God, living, that he has given us what we need? I mean, would he have left it open to us? Hey, here's some stuff, but y'all figure out the rest of it. And certainly the sufficiency of scripture. I mean, as Baptists, you know, we really, uh, we really pound the block on this. The scriptures are sufficient. Well, we have to, you know, if we're not going to follow them and use them only, uh, use only what's commanded for worship, then do we really believe the scriptures are sufficient? And fourthly, oh, I went away. the Bible expressly condemns all worship that is not commanded by God. Now that's the big 
picture right there. In these passages we're going to look at, I'll run down so you can, if you want to turn there with me and look at them right quick. Uh, well, we'll look at the New Testament ones. Colossians 2, I think, 20, 20 through 23. And then there was, um, well, we'll just look at these three. Deuteronomy 12. What is that? 29 through 32. Can y'all read and read this? And then the scary one is Leviticus 10. I think it's 1 through 3. So, so that's that that principle or that um, argument is that the Bible does condemn all worship that's not commanded by God. So we've got to, if that's true, we've got to look at it and consider it. So we'll look at Colossians two uh, twenty three. This one. Um, Um, all right, so he's talking about things disqualify you. Um, if, if, if Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, not taste, not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, or the King James calls that will worship, in asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, he's saying if, if you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why are you bringing those things in to the church and submitting to them? Right? You're bringing these into worship. And especially this self-made religion, this will worship, or the, the worship of self. You are overriding what God has called us to in worship for your own desires. In all these things which are of no value of stopping the indulgence of the flesh anyways. And I think that's the thing that gets me, some of the stuff that has been mentioned. You know, people are saying, well, we're trying to, we're trying to reach the world, so we're going to make our worship as much worldly things that the worldly people are used to as possible so that then we can get them to listen to Jesus, you know. And so we're going to kind of sneak Jesus in on them. We're going to make them think they're at a concert that they would go to anywhere else and then... And again, I don't think that everybody who does these kind of things, I don't think all of the people are evil and wicked and their intentions are only evil and wicked. I think some people really believe we can do all this stuff and we're going to reach people for Jesus. But there again, going back to Sunday sermon, we don't believe that the power of God and salvation is the gospel. And we think we've got to trick people and we've got to fool them. And, you know, and, and I, know a lot of my, I know a lot of my belief about... Um, sovereign grace plays into this but I just don't think we got to do that to get lost people saved I think God by his spirit and through his word is powerful enough to work on people um, you know I think I think that the, the thing that works if you want to talk about meeting people where they are is literally meeting people where they are wherever you find them and wherever you're at with them that is the place to talk with them invite them to come to worship um, you know, I don't even think that lost people expect to come to church and feel like they're at the what the local pub or whatever. You know, I think they're going to think, well, if I'm going to church, this is going to be something I'm not used to or something different. And, again, I think it should be. 
because um, that's not what we're doing. And besides, we can't we can't compete with the world. I mean, there's we don't have the we don't have the assets and the um, material stuff and the money. And plus, you just don't. I mean, you're wanting to bring people out of the world and show them something different, right? But what, what's the other passage here? Deuteronomy. But I do think that our churches and our culture has gotten to the point where they think that they do have to compete with the world. Yeah. And, I mean, you see it all the, all day long if you watch any of those TVN people. Yeah. And I remember way back when... Tammy Faye Baker and all those people, they were really part of, you know, kind of wooing you in. Yeah. Well, and that's what the whole, the whole um, seeker-sensitive movement was about that. You know, and I mean, most of us have been, I, I can say I was caught up in that for a little while. I thought that, hey, you know, everything is seeker-sensitive. We got to see what... This, what, are, what are lost people looking for? And we got to give it to them. And not in the sense that I felt like I was ever competing with the, like I'm going to give them on Sunday morning what they just got at the Georgia Dome on Friday night at the football game. I mean, I can't give them that. But this idea, and, you know, it finally got to where, I mean, books have been written and literally where people were going out and polling their culture and their community and saying, if, if you were going to come to a church service, what would it need to look like? And what would we need to do? And they were taking that and coming in, and they were building church services around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what was that other guy up there? Uh, Hybels? Um, Willow Creek? That Willow Creek model was a seeker-sensitive movement um, model. I mean, of course, Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Life, all that stuff. Um, and they still are doing it. Of course, you know, he's – what I say he's worth – $26 million, $23 million. So, you know, yeah, it's worse for him. <laughs> yeah. Well, Southern Baptist Convention, sort of, yeah. But they, uh, anyways, I didn't mean to get way off on that, but back to Deuteronomy 12. But I think we have a lot of that in our, yeah. in our world. Well, thankfully, that seeker sensitive thing has sort of died out. Mm-hmm. But you know, for a long time, you had to, your church had to be blacked out, it had to be low lights, and there's still some even in this area that that's. I mean, I remember listening to them a lot. We got to get the, we got to get our stage blacked out. We got to get the lights, you know, the certain kind of lights. And I don't know what I don't understand. I don't know what else behind that. So, so I think I know one thing for me that I kind of was convicted on early on was I. As I was reading reform guides and things, <laughs> something dawned on me one day, and that was there's basically two philosophies at war with each other on what is the purpose of the church. Mm-hmm. Is the purpose of the church primarily, and both of these they overlap a little bit, but is the primary purpose of the church to evangelize the lost? Right. Or is the primary purpose of the church for the believers to worship God together? Mm-hmm. Yes. And where it depends on which one of those you land on as to which direction you go Absolutely. and what, what you prioritize. And and in the reform camp, you know, it's the second one. Right. So yes, evangelism can happen, but that's not the primary focus. Right. The everything about the worship service is directed 
and intending that the audience is believers and not lost people. Right. Whereas the other way around, everything's primarily going to be focused towards a lost person. Right. And that'll even affect like Presbyterians and denominations I've seen. Yeah, it affects everybody. Because it does, and pretty soon the audience for worship is people and not God. Where we're yes. we're not coming to worship Him, we're coming for the people, and hopefully they'll see Him. Or you know, and that was one of the things I was mentioning earlier. The way I got caught up in it was the that Southern Baptist thing that convinced me that Sunday school, the purpose of Sunday school, sole purpose was to evangelize. Mm-hmm. So suddenly we were canvassing our communities and bringing all of our trying to bring the people that didn't know Christ to Sunday school where we were going to do nothing but and what what hit me I think like you were saying for you what hit me is I got looking around realizing nobody in here knows the gospel like we're thinking we're going to do all this great stuff for these people that don't know God and bring them in here but none of us know anything about scripture we know nothing about God you know we've been faking it we know that we don't drink, smoke, and date girls that do whatever that saying is. Drink, smoke, and chew, or date girls that do. But we don't know anything about Scripture or God. And I got to thinking, God, that probably should be a priority. We should probably be teaching, doing some serious teaching. And all the while, and of course I started realizing, you know, the gospel has benefits for the believer, not just, not just bringing us to Christ. It affects everything who we are. And that really... You know, I, I didn't know why I didn't fit in anymore, but I knew I didn't. I couldn't do that model anymore. Something wasn't right. The purpose of coming together could not be just to see how many people get saved, because we're not going to ever do anything but that. And then, and I started seeing a lot of these people that I felt like were just weak and impotent in their knowledge of Scripture, but they were evangelizing. And and again, nothing wrong with that. Don't don't mishear me and say I'm not saying don't evangelize. That's important. And I think every week, I mean, we try to make sure that we preach the gospel here and call lost people to Christ and um, the church to Christ and keep calling them to Christ and to the gospel. Well, I think but, one thing, too, that's been forgotten so much in American churches these days is one of the, if not the main purpose of us meeting together is to strengthen the sheep and teach us how to disciple others. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's a major aspect of us meeting together is to yes. learn how to re- how to reach the people out there. Mm-hmm. And again, we we focus so much on getting people in here and not so much on discipling them out there. Right. Uh, then they will come to church after that. Or disciple them so, in here. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's all about discipling and, yeah. and coming alongside people and living life mm-hmm. with them and all of that. Well, I was amazed today. Uh, talking to this person I mentioned earlier, um, the questions that this person had was, they weren't deep, profound questions. They were simple things. Is it okay for me to ask God questions? I've always been told I shouldn't ask him questions. I shouldn't question him. Well, I think that shows that you believe God's in control. I mean, who else are you going to ask? You know, somebody told me that. Who else would I ask? <laughs> Something happened, I don't understand. That'd be the best place to go. God's in control of it. And I got thinking about that, that how much, you know, this person has, has been in church uh, much of their life, different churches. And, and some of it, you know, I mean, I don't understand why some people get really hungry to be fed and some people don't. I mean, that's a, a mystery. But a lot of it is just never have been taught anything that, um, you know. I mean, 
I professed they were in my youth group. I didn't do a great job when I was, you know, 30-something years ago thinking I was doing something. I was just trying to love them and teach them. I didn't know that much to teach them, you know. But, um, and there again, I was thinking at the time, my only purpose is to get them to Christ. If I can just get them saved, then, you know, because we always say that. If we get them saved, then everything we did is worth it all. But, yeah, but then the scripture, I don't think, lets us get off of that. Hey, man, you got responsibility here to teach people. Um, anyways, let's look at Deuteronomy 12 because this is pretty important. And then there's this one other. This is in specifically in talking about worship. And this is the Old Testament. When the Lord your God cu- cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you do not get ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. And they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. That's pretty clear. I mean, I know that's Old Testament. But also, you think about that. This is very specific. And, you know, if you think back, uh, well, you don't think back from here. You think forward. No, you do think back from here. Well, I guess chronologically, uh, I don't know. Chronologically, it would be back um, to the wilderness. And what does it say about when the children of Israel made that golden calf? Yeah. They weren't worshiping the golden calf, really. They were worshiping their God through the, the God that brought them out of Egypt through the golden calf specifically what he's saying right here don't do that you can't worship me that way everything I command you you should be careful to do don't add to it or take from it it's amazing that most people know that passage and I think it's kind of quoted in Revelation Um, and they'll use it in a lot of ways but they won't use it in regards to worship don't add to or take away from hey whatever's commanded and then of course the one that uh Maybe most terrifying and familiar in this, and I can't ever spell that word. And this thing won't search it if I don't spell it correctly. Oh gosh, Leviticus. There it goes. All right. So Nadab and Abihu. We sort of mentioned them last time. The sons of Aaron, who is a priest, right? Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And there again, if we go back to this idea, why can we not just do like that Anglican church and do everything that's commanded in everything that's not forbidden because this is what happened this was not forbidden you can't go back through the law and find anywhere where whatever this strange unauthorized fire was was forbidden but it was unauthorized in other words it wasn't commanded that's what it says it was unauthorized because it had not been commanded and so the Lord consumed them and and they died and now, thankfully, um, 
I guess it might be right to say on this side of the cross, if we make a mistake in this, probably we're not going to get consumed by fire. But it is something for us to think about and be considering that. And, and like I mentioned earlier, we discover, hey, you know what, we've been doing this as part of worship, and I'm not sure it's commanded to us for us to do. We need to stop doing it, you know. And, uh, the, you know, Nadab and Abihu is a good example of why we don't want to do that. Um, but there again, I think that lesson is there, and this is why these guys that poured over this and said, you know, what should we do at worship? It's not enough just to say we can do what's commanded and not forbidden. We've got to stick with only doing what's commanded. And I think that's super important for a lot of reasons. But if nothing else, just if we want if we want to be able to really worship God in spirit and truth and, um, you know, just have his blessings on our worship and grow us, then it's important that we do what we worship him the way he's commanded us to worship him. And so that's why this section is in here. And like I said, um, the men who, the men who battled over this and, and, uh, you know, tried to figure all this out, they were fighting against a lot of things that in some ways we don't fight against, but in some ways we are fighting against the same things. They're just called, they look different, right? They look different than they did then. I saw a quote today from uh, Bodie Markle. I think it fits this really well. It's, it's <coughs> the church is no longer the church when it begins to reflect the culture around it rather than the God of the Bible. And yeah. That's, I mean, I think you see that in America so much. Yeah. Culture is reflected more than God's word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was some of the stuff we looked at on Sunday morning, this past Sunday morning too. That idea of not being ashamed, like we don't, we in our culture, there's not much shame in being a Christian unless you're in certain places and certain arguments are going on. Everybody's kind of cool with Christians and the church until it comes to pol- political issues or whatever. But I think that's a that's a great quote. To, and it just reminds us that that is our purpose is to look like Christ and not like the world. And, you know, you go back to that uh, Romans one sixteen. I mean, if the gospel is not going to save people, there's nothing left. I mean, our our ability to do stuff for people and bring them in is not going to save them. Even loving on them like that we're supposed to, and, and I think loving people is important, and um, showing people care and concern, all those things matter, and we should do that. But we should never get confused in thinking that's what's going to bring them to Christ. Um, the gospel alone does that. And um, in our worship, we just shouldn't give that up. We, you know, we should keep trying to figure out how we can best make worship the best. Um, I don't I hesitate to use the word experience, but it, we are. It is an experience, but it's not um, like something experiencing God kind of experience if anybody's familiar with Henry Blackaby but um, all of us old Southern Baptists we know him <clears throat> but the um, I, I think that is you know what we should do I mean I'm constantly trying to look at how much can we fit into our worship time and how much can we involve how much can we involve everybody because I think that's important and I don't think it's uh I think the things we're doing is commanded us in Scripture where, I mean, uh, literally, the uh, 
reciting a creed or confession is not in the Bible, but again, by implication, we're confessing together the things that we believe. And this is what we believe. We believe in God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ and we all those things we confess. But I think that that's one of the reasons I want to try to get this right and I want God to honor it and Him to be glorified and us to really be able to worship. Because um, we, we, people have, churches, churches have called worship things that are not worship, worship. And we've kind of separated out parts of it even, right? Well, it's time for worship. And then we stop whatever that is and then like somehow preaching's not part of worship or the supper is not part of worship or you know it was only that or this <clears throat> when yeah worship leader yeah worship leader yeah now we're going to read the bible what we were worshiping before yeah. i remember mark ever telling preaching on the puritans and how they had the hourglass the, the one hour yeah and a preacher would come up, and if they did good, somebody would come up and turn it over and give them another hour. Or <laughs> Otherwise, they'd have to be done. <laughs> anyway, and, and Mark Dever was teaching his congregation, and one lady raised her hand and said, they preached for an hour? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, she's like, well, that didn't leave much time for worship. Yeah. <laughs> and it's exactly what you're talking about. There, there was just this, there's this modern association calling the, the singing and the praise part, they're calling that worship. And, and yep. Yeah. And none of other stuff is worse. You know, and, and again, I mean, thankfully, uh, there's been a revival among, uh, there's been a revival of Puritanism, not in the sense that, you know, we can write like them or talk like them or even preach for two or three hours like them, but a, a revival in that understanding of their desire to. You know, because a lot of Puritans, I mean, they had, they're just like us. They, they were sinful and they had problems. If you look into their personal lives, a lot of them had some issues. But for the most part, uh, you know, they're really trying to figure out. I was listening today to even Baptist history, and like I said, just prior to our confession being written, when when the first real known Baptists, uh, Reformed Baptists, um, Calvinistic Baptists that we can trace back to, and these were men that once they started coming out of the, the Church of England and places like this and trying to f- fix things, they would put together mature men and they would just sit and they would pour over the Bible for days to try to figure out, okay, what do we really believe about baptism? How should baptism be done? What does the Bi- And this was this idea of regulative principle. What does the Bible say about baptism? What does the Bible say about baptiz- baptizing children? Should we be doing this? Should we be dunking people or pouring it okay i mean they were really trying to figure out what does the bible say about this and then out of that comes this whole history and this whole um uh lineage of um, baptist belief that most people don't realize goes past you know 40 years ago or 50 years ago and to see how far baptist belief has since then kind of went off and everywhere else i'm thankful to see it coming back at least there's an understanding of where it came from. And um, I think it's important we get back to it because these things matter. I mean, they really do. And, um, you know, I'm thankful that God brought me to where he has before my kids were grown and I could introduce them to this. Now, they may all leave it one day. I don't know. I mean, I don't have control over that. But um, I'm thankful for that. And uh, I'm thankful for all of our kids that are here that 
I, I'm astounded sometimes that things are our kids pick up in worship. And I think that um, you're talking about discipleship. You know, I really believe, and I get this from my Puritan readings, I really believe that the greatest discipleship takes place from right here on the Lord's Day. There's something supernatural about the people of God. Get Not that I'm the best teacher or whoever's standing here is the best teacher and the best discipler, but there's something supernatural about the way God meets with his people when we're worshiping and we're trying to worship him through his word and from his word. And it just puts those things in my uh, at least for me, and I, sometimes my kids will say something like, "Wow, why, how do you know that? Where'd you get that from?" Well, I mean, I heard it in church, you know, one of the Sundays. You said it, like, I said it. Yeah. You know? yeah. That's awesome. Anyways, thank y'all for listening. Anything y'all? Anybody wants to say anything? Time to go. You know, it kind of gets tricky though when you start thinking about it's like, okay, what about pianos? And right. Pianos and exactly mentioned, or but music is. Music is, uh, but then it's like, but only the lyre or the harp. Uh, right. You know, it's like, it's like how, how, you know. But a stringed instrument, it's a stringed, yeah. And I think that's why, I think that's why the Puritans were careful to point out in regulative principle, not only what's commanded, but what by implication is commanded too. Because like I said, I know people, strict adherence to the regulative principle well, don't let people recite things together because they say I don't see anybody reciting things together in the Bible. There's no New Testament principle or example of. Okay, but again, there was obviously a confession when Paul talked to Timothy about you've made this great confession together with your grandmother Lois or whatever. You've made this confession. There was obviously an understanding of the church was confessing something together. They knew it. Yeah. And that's why I say, I mean, I think it's, you know, with prayer and grace and, and you try to figure it out. But I think it's, we should try to figure it out from the Bible and not just, well, yeah, it won't hurt to stick that in there. I mean, I don't see it forbidden anywhere, you know.